I like to tell the story of how my oldest son, then six years old, some of you met him yesterday, he's 26 now, but this is from when he was six years old, how he reacted when my family moved from the sprawling suburbs of Northern Virginia, just outside Washington, D.C., to the little town of North Manchester, Indiana, over 20 years ago. It was a huge move in distance, but also in culture and context from east to Midwest, from suburb to small town, from busy, hectic, even unsafe spaces to quieter, slower, less dangerous spaces, from being closer to extended family to being farther away, from smaller congregation to larger congregation, from the familiar to the new and different. Our two sons were six and two at that time, and though young, they both showed effects from the move, but the six-year-old was most aware and expressive, and he was not too happy about that move. He was leaving his school and his friends behind. He was moving away from fairly regular contact with his grandparents. He was leaving the only home he had ever known. He was, of course, young enough to adapt, but old enough to know that this wasn't going to be a piece of cake. We moved in the late summer, so school hadn't started yet, but new things were on the horizon, and he knew it. The only people we had really met were church people, and he didn't yet know them very well. And besides, it was a much larger church, and so the number of new church people was a bit overwhelming for him. In those early days, he was in a pretty bad mood, and it seemed to go on longer than was typical. One evening I said to him, let's talk about this. Tell me what you are feeling. He got very serious, this six-year-old, fixed me with a glare. You made a very bad mistake, he said, bringing us to this wasteland. I had to stifle a smile because although I was sympathetic to his feelings, I was startled by his use of the word wasteland. Where had he come up with that? You made a very bad mistake bringing us to this wasteland. Later on, I think we figured out where he had heard the word wasteland, although I can't remember anymore exactly where it was that he learned it. I do remember thinking that the amazing thing wasn't that he had heard the word, but that he had figured out how to use it in such a potent and pointed way. From his perspective, we had left Eden and come to this wilderness. We had left the familiar to come to the foreign. I suppose you could say that we, his parents, had driven him out of paradise. The paradise of my school and my friends, my church, my neighborhood, my house, my room, my driveway and yard and playset, and we had driven him out and brought him to this wasteland. Later on, wasn't too much later, but later on he would change his mind when the small town gave him the small town gifts of new friends and the wonder of seeing people he knew in the grocery store and being able to ride his bicycle around the neighborhood by himself. But for that opening stretch, 
it felt like desert, empty and barren. The desert, of course, is not really empty and barren. There are things growing there and living there. There is life. Some of the expressions of life may be dormant, but they are there. A sudden rainfall, for example, can cause the desert to explode with a riot of color in terms of plants and flowers. Some animals are there all the time, just camouflaged or hiding in the shade or the shadows. You're not hiding in the shade or the shadows, are you, Mark? The desert is not dead, but it can feel that way. The biblical references to wilderness are, of course, mostly references to the desert. We know this because we know about the topography and the climate of those areas in which these biblical stories are set. But wilderness is also a metaphor. It's a word to describe a place or a state of being that feels empty, barren. Wilderness is that internal place as well where we are alone or feel alone, dried out, emptied of hope, maybe even desperate. In the case of Jesus, it was also a place of temptation and test and danger. Some people claim to like the desert, the wilderness, but I have to admit that I'm always a little suspicious of that. Sure, I think to myself, they might like the idea of wilderness, of quiet and solitude and separation, but likely only if they get to choose that state of being. No one wants to be driven into the wilderness as the scripture describes it happening to Jesus. And again, when it comes to being tested, perhaps it's fine if you are testing yourself, pushing yourself to some limit or line that you choose to see what you are made of, for example, but being tested by circumstances or forces that are beyond you, beyond your control, again, another matter. And yet within our routine and familiar lives, our everyday normal lives, very few of us get out of our ruts get out of our routine ways of thinking and acting unless we are actually compelled or driven to leave those familiar spaces. Whether we like it or not, internal movements often take external pressure to get things going. Will we go there ourselves into the wilderness? Not usually. Usually we have to be pushed or taken, or as Jesus was, driven. Now, there is a bit of good news in all of this, and it is that once in the wilderness, Jesus and we are not left completely alone. The scripture says that Jesus had angels waiting on him, or as Eugene Peterson translates it in his The Message paraphrase, Angels took care of him. What do you think that means? That angels took care of him? That they fed him? Protected him? Gave him enough fortitude to face all temptation? Is it that they kept him from 
more loneliness and depression than he could stand, what do you think it means that the angels took care of him? He obviously had physical needs, but he also had emotional needs, psychological needs, spiritual needs, just as we do. It was a time of preparation there in the wilderness, of shaping, of transition, and whether he knew it or not or understood it or not, he was being readied for what was ahead. But it is hard to know to understand this readying for what is ahead. It was hard for him, and it's hard for us. It's hard to understand because what is ahead is still a mystery. It is the unknown future. It's uncertain. It is uncomfortable. But the angels took care of Jesus, and while we might say that that probably doesn't mean that they rescued him from what was hard or placed themselves between him and his discomfort or uncertainty or pain, they must have given him something of what a person needs in the wilderness. I can imagine, in his case, as is true for many who wander in the wilderness or the wasteland, what was needed most was patience and perspective. After all, the named time frame of 40 days is simply another way of saying a long, long time. A time long enough that whatever is needed to get worked out has time to get worked out. But long times need long strings of patience, which is really trust that things will get worked out. Do you think of patience that way? Trust that things will get worked out. Maybe not as expected, but certainly worked out in some fashion that will allow us to go on from there. And perspective? Perspective is when we realize that everything that we see is only a fraction of what is and what might be. Perspective invites us to widen the view and to ask, what is there that might be just outside my range of awareness? And once I see it, can I accept it? This is the path of growth, you know, the path of patience and perspective. Things that a wilderness walk might give to us. And this is nothing new. Jesus and many through the ages who have sought to follow his example have discovered this. In fact, back in the early centuries of Christian faith, there were many people who actively sought to go out into the wilderness, go out into the desert as a place to shape and form their faith and their lives, to extend their patience, to broaden their perspective in that dry place. For about 250 years after Christ walked the earth, for about the next 400 years, there was an especially intense and vibrant period of desert spirituality. And literally thousands of men and women went out into the Palestinian desert to live in 
monasteries or to live as hermits. I was listening to a podcast this past week called In Search Of. It's uh, produced by the Christian Century. And this particular podcast was uh, meant to help mark the beginning of Lent. I was talking about desert fathers and mothers. Amy Frickholm, host of the podcast, told of her research into one particular desert mother, Mary of Egypt. I had never heard of Mary of Egypt, but apparently Mary of Egypt is one of the most well-known saints of those desert mothers, particularly in the Orthodox tradition. And when Lent comes around, her story is told. So I'm going to share a little of what Frickholm talked about uh, in terms of Mary of Egypt. You may or may not know that these uh, monks who went out into the desert, some of them did uh, go out and live in caves by themselves with virtually no contact with anybody else. And Mary of Egypt was one of these people. Others went out and formed monasteries. And they might live in a, a cell by themselves, but they would gather then either weekly or daily for communion and fellowship. And so they lived in monastic communities. And you're probably familiar with some of the monastic communities that came out of that tradition, like the, the Benedictines and the Franciscans and those, those kinds of communities. But Mary of Egypt was one of these solitary hermits. Her story, as I said, is, uh, is told during Lent, and it goes like this. She was 12 years old when she ran away from her home in Egypt. And we don't know where her home was, but it, presumably it was somewhere along the Nile, and she ran away to the big city, which was Alexandria. We don't know why she ran away from home. Uh, perhaps she was engaged to somebody she did not want to marry, which was not uncommon, at, even at the age of 12. Perhaps uh, she was subject to violence within her family. Perhaps she'd been sold into slavery and ran away. The reason that she ran away may not have been any different than would be true for a young girl who might run away from home today. Anyway, Mary of Egypt ran to Alexandria, and for 17 years she lived as a street prostitute and a beggar. And the tradition says that she never had a home. She lived and slept in doorways. 17 years. And then about the age of 29, she was on the seashore one day, and she saw people running towards ships. And she asked someone where they were going, and they said they were going to Jerusalem for the Feast of the Holy Cross. And she said... I want to go to Jerusalem for the Feast of the Holy Cross. How do you get on one of those boats? And the person standing next to her said, well, you have to have money. And she didn't have money, so she sold her body to pilgrims who were traveling to Jerusalem. And through all her writings, which are recorded later, although she never portrays herself as a victim, she was clearly a victim of sexual violence and exploitation. But she gets to Jerusalem. She makes her way to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. She tries to go inside so she can venerate the cross. She can bow to the cross and pray. And for some mystical reason, she can't get into the church. She's physically prevented from getting into the church. And so she goes out into the courtyard of the church, and she's sitting there by herself. 
and she sees an icon, a picture of the Virgin Mary. And she begins a dialogue with this icon. She starts talking to the icon. Frickholm says, I love this part of the story because it's mystical in a way that I understand the mystical. It's mystical in the sense that Mary on the icon never speaks to Mary of Egypt. It's not like Mary climbs down from the icon and starts interacting with her. But Mary of Egypt has a sort of mystical dialogue with the icon and she comes to understand that her life is somehow preventing her from having this entrance that she's looking for. There's no no coming from somewhere else. It's in her. It's not somebody else. It's not something else. And she understands that she wants to change her life. And so she asks Mary, asks Mary and the icon, the mother of Jesus, in this mystical dialogue to help her change her life. And then once she does that, she's able to go into the church and venerate the Holy Cross. And she comes out and she doesn't know what to do next. And she says something to this effect. Now what? Now what do I do? I said I was going to change my life, but how am I going to change my life? And then she hears a voice from far away. And the voice says, if you cross the river, you will find a beautiful rest. And she takes that voice to be for her. And she asks somebody where the river is. And they point her in the direction of the Jordan River. And she walks miles and miles and miles and miles to get there. And she crosses the Jordan River. And she lives the rest of her life as a hermit. Now, we would know nothing about her except for a coda to the story. And it's this. There was another monk, a man named Zosimus, who the story says was from one of the old original monasteries in the desert. And he was a great monk. In fact, he was such a good monk that a little voice in his head said, there are no more teachers for you. You have ascended above everybody else. There's no one left to teach you. That's how good he was. But he was also good enough to recognize that that's a very dangerous position to be in when you think you have nothing left to learn and no one to teach you. So he left the monastery where he had been most of his life and he traveled to a place unknown to him. And he found these monks that were by the Jordan River and they had a, an interesting practice during Lent. They would go into the desert for six weeks. You could go and take supplies with you, or you could go and trust the desert. didn't matter either way. But when you went into the desert during Lent, you were to be by yourself. And if somebody else came to you, you were to run away. That was the discipline of Lent. So he finds these monks. He finds out about this tradition. He goes into the desert. He thinks that, nevertheless, he's going to find a new teacher in the desert. Somebody who can really teach him about Christian tradition. Someone who can teach him what his monkhood is all about. What it means to live as a follower of Christ. He decides that the person he's looking for must be in the desert. So he travels there and he's in the desert during Lent. And goes days and days without finding anyone. There's no one. Until he sees one figure. And he decides since he sees this one figure, this must be the person he's looking for. And who do you think it is? Right? 
It's Mary of Egypt. And he sees her off in the distance and he chases after her and she runs away. But eventually, they encounter each other through his persistent and deep desire to find this new teacher. He listens to her story, and immediately he understands her. And in understanding her, he understands himself better. And the two of them become deep friends over a relatively short period of time. And eventually, he carries her story back out of the wilderness to the other monks. And he dedicates his life to telling her story. And that's why we know about her. All right, thanks for coming along with me. I know that was sort of a long, um, a long story, but there's two things I want to point out about it. The first is that what drives Mary of Egypt into the wilderness, into the desert, is that she decides she wants to change her life. Everything runs against that likelihood. Up until that point, her life has been a wreck. For 17 years, she's been spiraling in a downward direction. We know people whose lives are spiraling in a downward direction and how hard it is to come to the point of change. But she decides she wants to change. And through a series of steps and through mystical messages, she finds a path. And God meets her. In the wilderness, she becomes who God intends her to become from that low place to a place of solitude, but also peace and purpose. The second thing I want to highlight is from the other side of the story, from Zosimus, the monk who was seeking a new teacher. Unlike Mary of Egypt, his life was going upward, spiraling upward. And he'd reached the pinnacle of learning and enlightenment. But like Mary, he knows that that isn't enough either. It doesn't matter whether you're down at the bottom or up at the top. There is still discovery to be had. Learning, growth, change. He goes into the desert. He's not satisfied. He goes into the desert, and it takes him to Mary, and he too has this mystical encounter with her. And she is, we might say, the angel who takes care of him in the wilderness. Now what about us? High or low? Struggling or successful? What about us? As we embark on this season of land, what about us? Decisions? Change? Mystical care? What are you seeking? What do you need? What do you hope to find? I hope you find some or even all of that in the Lenten wilderness. For the good news is that God will meet you there. And angels will care for you. The wilderness is not a wasteland. It is your pathway to discovery. Amen. During this season of Lent, after the sermon, we're going to have a practice of just spending a little bit of time in silence 
for reflection, for prayer, for you to think about your life and where you are and where you're headed. So let's spend a little bit of time in silence now before we sing our closing hymn.